0: Welcome to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer with you for the next two hours. Um, This is real professional of me, but I have to make a statement. Lucas, just be careful. My Fitbit is right next to you with the case off, it's charging on that computer. Uh, by the News Boss computer. So just be careful, because I know how fragile those things are. I have broken one before. So I forgot to take that off the charger. I will do so after this segment. So very professional stuff we're doing here on WBEN. It has been a week that I didn't think we'd get back to. Talking about things that I think many people thought we were done talking about. But that is not the case, and we are here to look at it from all aspects with the professionals, with those who are in D.C., and with the politicians themselves. So let's get started. Our first guest is Dr. Tom Russo from the UB uh, Jacobs School of Medicine. Dr. Russo, good morning.
4: Hey, Joe. Great to be with you.
0: Now, Dr. Russo, I, uh, you know, a lot going on, a lot that I think many of us don't understand. Uh, So so the first thing is I want to know your opinion on the CDC's reissued guidance this week for vaccinated individuals in areas of substantial transmission wearing masks indoors again
4: well my take on it is slightly different than what most people have been talking about most people have been focusing on if you're fully vaccinated there's a chance that you could go ahead and get infected which of course we've known all along right the vaccines are not perfect. And what the little twist is that uh, you could potentially transmit the virus to others. So that's sort of what's new, and that's what they've been focusing on. However, to be clear, uh, I think people need to realize that what's really driving this wave is the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are the ones that are primarily getting infected. They're primarily infecting others. So what the mask mandate does is we've been relying on the honor system previously. And I think all of us that have been wandering around here in Western New York, uh, going to the, the baseball games, could appreciate that the honor system has been imperfect. So a mask mandate would make sure that everyone's wearing a mask. No one has to play mask police. So the vaccinated uh, then, where the virus spreads best indoors and crowded outdoor settings, will be wearing masks. They'll be protecting themselves and they'll be protecting others. So, you know, a secondary less important you know effect of that is yes if there is a fully vaccinated person that happens to be uh, infectious uh, then that will also mitigate spread to a degree and then probably even more important than that is hopefully the fully vaccinated immunocompromised and more elderly where the vaccine might not be optimal hopefully they've been wearing masks in high-risk settings all along but if not this would be a- another way to try to get them to protect themselves. So that's sort of how I see it. I think the emphasis has been not quite where it should be. Um, but the science with, you know, the fully vaccinated, maybe now able to spread the Delta variant, which is slightly different from the Alpha variant. is sort of the new science. And that's gotten a lot of attention and press.
0: Do you think the attention also obviously should be on getting the unvaccinated vaccinated? Uh, because we look at the hospitalizations, we see that you know most hospitalizations are unvaccinated and you know we look at when the mask mandate was taken uh, taken away here in new york state we are still at a much lower number which uh, in my opinion illustrates that the vaccine works Uh, as 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 a doctor does that bother you that the emphasis or the the the, um, focus hasn't been on how much the vaccine does work yeah
4: joe i think you are Spot on, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. So let me just throw a few numbers out at you here in terms of, you know, both nationally and here in Western New York. So we know that the overwhelming majority of new cases are in the unvaccinated. We know that nationwide, 97% plus of hospitalizations are in the unvaccinated and greater than 99% of deaths in the unvaccinated. So our vaccines are working. They're not perfect. We have, uh, you know, some breakthrough infections with more with the Delta variant uh, um, than we had previously. But it's getting it done. It's preventing people from getting severely ill and dying. So now where, so if everyone was vaccinated, (laughs) so it's disturbingly, we've had enough vaccine to get this done, right? But we've been dragging our feet here, unfortunately. But if everyone is vaccinated, we'd be done with this. So uh, where do we stand here in Western New York? And I think the way to look at it, is across our entire population. I appreciate that, you know, if you're less than 12, you're not eligible, but you're still at risk for getting infected. And I think we also should look at who has gotten, you know, fully vaccinated both doses, because we know that with the RNA vaccines, a single dose of Pfizer and Moderna isn't very protective against the Delta variant. So nationwide, 49% are fully vaccinated. So that means half of this country is at risk for getting infected with the Delta variant with, you know, potentially lethal and totally unpredictable consequences. We're doing better here in Erie County. We're at 57%. However, that means unfortunately 43% of people here in Erie County could get infected. That's a big number as far as I'm concerned. And so I said, okay, as you pointed out, hospitalizations are down, which means we've done a better job vaccinating our most vulnerable. And and that's absolutely true. and, And that's been so important but we're still quite imperfect there. So if you look at the Erie County data, 87% of people, 65 to 75, are fully vaccinated. You go, huh, okay, that's pretty good. I'd like to see that 13% shrink a little bit, but that's not bad. But, wow, if you look at the 75 and up, are absolutely most vulnerable, only 78%. So 22% of those we know are absolutely at highest risk for a bad income remain to be vaccinated. So the way I see it, you know, all these talks of masks, we know masks protect us to a degree, but they're imperfect. You know, we can't wear masks when we're eating or drinking, which much of our activities, social activities, when we interact we revolve around that. Um, masks are a bit of vaccination. Uh, you know, we, we got to get it done with vaccination. We have to pick up the pace. And uh, that's really the only way we're going to get out of this. There's going to be two types of people in this world when this is all over, when, when this pandemic is behind us. Those that got vaccinated and those that got infected. This Delta variant is so infectious, it's going to find you if you're not protected.
0: Speaking of vaccines, you know, we've heard some reports, obviously of boosters. and I think anyone who got a vaccine knew eventually a booster would be there. But when we are looking at the most vulnerable and the old and you know, above sixty five. so we're looking uh, ones with a lot of underlying conditions, severe underlying conditions, and over the age of sixty five, are we seeing a need for a third shot within that category?
4: So I think the uh, groups that we know the vaccines uh, don't generate an optimal uh, protective response are certain immunocompromised individuals, uh, transplant patients, certain hematologic or blood cell malignancies. Um, and there's a, a group of individuals are on certain types of drugs, too, that suppress, um, you know, a good antibody and cellular response post-vaccination. I won't bore you with the details. Uh, you know, and if there's a question, you should reach out and talk to your physician where you stand. But the other group is the 80-plus group, particularly if you have underlying disease. Um, there's some data suggesting the response is not optimal in them as well. So um, uh, those individuals, I think would likely benefit from a booster shot. I think they'll be first up to get a booster shot once it's approved in this country. Israel is already doing that right now, and um, I think that would probably be a pretty good idea.
0: Also, looking at the younger category, 12 and under, do you see that being approved, or a vaccine being approved for children as we get back into school next month?
4: Yeah, that's not going to happen by then, Joe, unfortunately. I think the data... Of the ongoing trials from Pfizer and Moderna in this country will start to see that data sometime maybe around October or so, um, maybe even a little later in November. It depends how they're doing with enrollment and, and sort of analyzing that data and presenting it to the FDA. So I think the best we could hope for is approval for the uh, less than 12 crowd is uh, sort of late in this year, 2021, or maybe the very beginning of 2022
0: now uh, going back to to the way things are reported because i've been bringing this up a lot this week um and, and i want to know your opinion i've i've heard both both sides of it dr russo but when we're talking about breakthrough cases right now i look at the vaccine and my opinion of the vaccine was um is it prevents from hospitalizations and deaths it doesn't prevent you from actually getting COVID, and we're seeing cases like Frank Wright with the Indianapolis Colts, who's asymptomatic, but they're calling it a breakthrough case because he tested positive. Same with Don Maddenley, who has mild symptoms, not in the hospital, um, vaccinated, uh, and they're calling that a breakthrough case. Do you think that's a miscommunication calling someone who's asymptomatic a breakthrough case? Because I look at that as the vaccine working
4: Yeah, it is a bit of semantics, Joe. What we need to emphasize that for the large part, you know, except for people that, you know, know, are more vulnerable to underlying diseases and, you know, immunosuppressed, these breakthrough cases are either asymptomatic or mild. So let me throw just a few numbers at you if I haven't thrown enough at you already on this uh, Sunday morning. So for the RNA vaccines, at least Pfizer, we have pretty good data, 88 percent efficacy against symptomatic disease, but around 79% for asymptomatic disease, okay? So, you know, a, a significantly lower than we saw earlier in terms of that 94% uh, percent for uh, a mild symptomatic disease, but again, as you emphasize, keeps people out of hospital. We don't have uh, as good a data for the J&J. It's certainly going to be lower. So that's why, in part, we're hearing about all these breakthrough infections because, you know, our vaccines are not perfect. But as you emphasize, and we need to, you know, get this message out there, those breakthrough infections, for the most part, are the common cold, the people being asymptomatic, Uh, and so the vaccines are getting it done, and that's why we need to keep pushing this point to individuals to try to close that gap for those that aren't vaccinated, to save as many lives as possible um, before this is over and they end up getting infected.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's just for me. You know, that there's the 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 population that of unvaccinated people who are obviously hesitant, and I just think, wow, we keep telling them about all these breakthrough cases instead of telling them what you know what these these individuals with breakthrough cases, like you said, Doctor Russo, they're not in the hospital, and, and that is the point of of the vaccine. I wish I wish that was communicated better uh, in the headlines, but it, it is 2021. You need that, you need that article to click on, I guess. Yeah, you
4: know, and it makes. Great press, you know, talk about breakthrough infections, but you're absolutely right. I think our focus is incorrect, and there's a lot of people that are at risk there. We're in better shape here in western New York, but, you know, um, deaths are going up in this country. We're averaging 300 a day. So just to put that in perspective for your listeners, Joe, okay, every 10 days there is many deaths that we have in this country now, even, that, even though we're close to record lows, than from 9 11 so, you know, we've sort of become attenuated to the mortality from this disease, but it's still significant. And those people that are dying are the unvaccinated, the preventable deaths. You hear these horrible stories when they're going into the ICU about to be intubated and says, oh, my gosh, I wish I'd gotten vaccinated. So for people that are listening out there, please don't put yourself in that position. Even if you feel you're young and healthy and you're not going to get seriously ill, this Delta variant is so infectious. It infects people with much higher viral loads that could overwhelm even a healthy immune system. All bets are off. This is the moment to get vaccinated. And remember, it takes five to six weeks to get that full protection from vaccination. So this is also proper planning. Once you get that shot in your arm, it's not like instant, you know, Star Trek shields at it 100%. It's going to take some time. So this is the moment. We've got fewer cases here in Western York, but they're on the rise. And this virus is going to find you if you're not vaccinated at this point.
0: And looking at variants, because we've heard the Delta variant, and this has obviously at this point been, I think, the scariest variant um, since you know COVID itself. Uh, are we? we and I know this is this is you know. Um, guessing, but looking at the Delta variant, now the the vaccine does still respond to it. Are we looking closer to a variant that's going to require that third booster shot or kind of a rearrangement of the vaccine? Or is the Delta variant, is this promising uh, for other variants?
4: No, I think that um, our vaccines are holding up pretty well with the Delta variant in terms of protecting us for what we want them to do, which is, we've been emphasizing, keeping you out of hospital and dying. But the reason it's wrecking so much havoc is it's so infectious, it's infecting more people. And the more people that you infect, there's going to be some that are vulnerable or get a huge viral load and get sick because of that or because of genetics just have uh, bad luck. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of a numbers game. And since it's so infectious, it could infect so many people with a higher load, and that is going to translate, unfortunately, into some bad outcomes.
0: Now, Dr. Russo, I don't want to pick on anyone, but, you know, I, I do think this is an important message at the end here to get across. You know, over the last year, a lot of people have been sitting at home, not very active. And we see that COVID-19 uh, is uh, more, you know, more likely to send you to the hospital if you are obese, overweight. Uh, as a doctor, does this concern you to see, you know, I, I've looked at numbers over the last year and projections are that, our obesity and overweight uh, rates have gone up over the last year with COVID. Uh, as a doctor, does that upset you to see?
4: Uh, absolutely, of course. You know, and uh, uh, we we used to talk about you know the freshman fifteen, you know the fifteen pounds you put on freshman year in college, right? Now it's the COVID fifteen plus, you know, and uh, and it's hard because you know gyms were closed because uh, you know concerns for transmission in that setting. But, you know, we all to get out there, particularly here in the summer in western New York, if ever this darn rain stops, right? What's going on with that, Joe? I don't know. But, uh, you know, walk your dog, take a hike, get out there. Uh, outdoors, as, you know, from a COVID point of view is the place to be anyway, right? And do the best you can at trying to trim some of those pounds, not only to protect yourself from getting severe outcomes from COVID, because we know that people that are obese do a lot worse but for a myriad of health-related issues as well moving forward. You know, this pandemic will end, and then we're going to go and have to go back and make sure that we make sure everyone's in optimal health from a variety of other related issues, and obviously obesity is an extraordinarily important one.
0: You know, Dr. Russo, I was hoping August was going to be the end of the rain, and look, here we are, August 1st and already a rainy day.
4: Oh, I know, isn't it? But, you know, I heard the next few days are going to be better. so. Uh,
0: Promising, I like that.
4: And I think yeah, and I think a bump of the cases we've had here in Western New York, you know, outdoor activities protects us to a degree. Though this Delta variant might be changing the rules a little bit on that. But certainly this rainy weather has been driving us indoors, and that certainly hasn't helped.
0: Dr. Tom Russo, Chief of Infectious Disease at the Jacob School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining me this morning.
4: Yeah, always great to chat with you, Joe.
0: That is Dr. Tom Russo. When we come back, we are going to Washington, D.C., and there is never a shortage of news out of this country's capital district and we will be talking with the one the only business insiders dave leventhal after a news update with mr alan harris here on wben it is hardline here on news radio call from mom answer it call silenced
1: instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game that's why they make ordering from your couch easy
5: podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast
3: all-star closer kenley jansen we have a question what's the best podcast of all time
0: I am ill prepared to come back, but I'm here. We are uh we are on with you. We talked to Dr. Tom Russo last segment talking to business insiders Dave Levensthal this segment. And then we are talking with Senator Rob Ort and at 11:30 we are going to Excuse me, we are going to Replay Brian Mazurowski and I's interview with Dr. Amesh Adalja from Johns Hopkins. Very insightful stuff, and we'll be playing that back at 1130 if you missed any of that. If you missed any of this, it's available on demand at WBEN.com and the Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y. Joining us now is Dave Leventhal, Deputy Washington Bureau Chief over there at the Business Insider. Dave, good morning good morning to you. Now, before we get into national stuff and what's going on at the Capitol and in Senate and the White House, you are in Washington, D.C., who at 5 a.m. yesterday imposed a mask mandate. Uh, but beside the mask, you're pretty much doing what you were doing on Friday, correct?
2: More or less. And Washington, D.C. is one example of 51 in the U.S. states plus the, the federal district here that have different rules they have different regulations. I live about a block away from the state of Maryland. If I walk across the street and about 200 yards past that, the rules change. Now, the virus does not. So it it just underscores the fact that all different types of jurisdictions all across the country are grappling with the very, very changing, rapidly changing uh, and evolving situation that we have here with the Delta uh, variety, uh Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus and expect that that's going to be more the case going forward. Hey, you know, viruses have been mutating for about, oh, two billion years. So this is how they work. And we're going to have to be responsive or we're going to have to pay the price for that.
0: What is uh, the vaccination rate in the uh, district?
2: It's quite high, uh, one, one of the higher uh, in the countries. And, uh, you know, some states are uh, kind of jockeying in front of each other or falling behind uh, week to week. Uh, but D.C. is uh, right around, uh, I believe, uh, the latest numbers are above 70 percent for people who have uh, at least one dose of the vaccine. So relatively good compared to other states around the country where that number is uh, still languishing uh, in, in the 30s or the 40s.
0: All right, Dave. Well, let's start uh, with what's going on on the national front and the thing that all these Sunday shows we talking about this morning. So, you know, I figure I'm technically a Sunday show. I probably should ask about it. And that is this infrastructure bill uh, in the Senate. Where are we? Is this getting passed? Uh, What's the holdout?
2: So the bottom line, as we speak right now, is that it's still in the Senate. And this is where all the action has been for the past many weeks. Well, we can extend it out beyond that the past many months. We have a bipartisan agreement. There has been a preliminary vote that indicated that there will be enough votes to go above and beyond the filibuster threshold, which is 60 votes in the 100-member U.S. Senate. Now, uh, there are still a few complications here, and here, here are them in, in order. Number one, you got to – Uh, actually get the final text of the bill and get it voted out by the Senate. We think, at least at this juncture, uh, uh, Joe, that this is going to happen. Uh, And that is uh, as close to being a done deal as we can get by congressional standards these days in 2021. But then all the action is going to change and go to the U.S. House, which is not in session right now. They've all gone home and they're going to be back uh, in about a month's time or so. And uh, there are some major questions right there as to to whether this is going to to be a a bill that um, stays the same, whether it changes. There could be also, Joe, some intramural Democratic drama, some Democrat on Democrat drama uh, coming from the left in particular, where Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other kind of far left progressives have a lot of questions about How this is going to be funded, whether this is uh, going to be the the right bill as it stands right now. So expect that this is going to to be complicated in the House, at least to some degree, and not just something that the Democrat-controlled U.S. House is going to rubber stamp and pass along to Joe Biden.
0: Speaking of things that might need to happen more uh, quicker than that, you said all co- all, uh, all the members of Congress are home. Well, not Congresswoman Cory Bush. She slept on the Capitol steps last night uh, in protest over the uh, expiring uh, eviction um, stop on, hold on evictions. Uh, is there any chance that we see Congress get back together for a quick vote on that?
2: doesn't seem like it's going to be the case, at least in the next couple of days. Uh, Members have scattered to the four winds and uh, have been leaving Washington, D.C. So were they to be called back into an emergency session or something of the sort, that would be pretty dramatic in and of itself and something that we don't expect to happen again, at least at this moment in time as we talk right now. So. This is going to be just wildly stressful for a whole bunch of people, and this is a very complicated situation. I mean, we've had almost for a year now an eviction moratorium that is, uh, if you're a landlord, this has just been maddening. Uh, if you are a renter, it, it, you <laughs> you still know that even though you have a moratorium, you're going to have to the you know the <laughs> the piper's going to have to be paid at some time here, Joe, and, uh, and there are quite literally several million people all across the country who are back on their rent. How are they going to pay it? And then we have a federal program that has provided money worth into the billions of dollars that is really just kind of choked in red tape. Uh, Only about roughly a third of that money has been distributed to people who need rental assistance all different jurisdictions across the country have different rules and regulations for that too. It's very complicated. So how is that money going to be distributed if there ultimately is no more moratorium going forward in a way that's going to keep people in their homes? And now, you know, one thing that is going to help at least some subset of people is that federal agencies that have loans for people who own their homes have said, we're not going to kick you out of your home because of foreclosure proceedings. So if you own your home, if you have a government loan, say, from the VA, then you, you might be in a better situation than if you rent your apartment and you've got a landlord who's been knocking on your door and blowing up your phone for the past six months because you haven't been paying your rent. So a lot is really going to come down to the personal situations of individuals and also to where they live around the country. What is the case in Buffalo could be very different from the case in Birmingham or Boise or anywhere else in the country.
0: Now, I want to talk a little bit about what we saw earlier in the week with the January 6th committee. They had their first meeting or their first hearing. Um, but before that, there was a little drama. And it's it's very interesting, Dave, because over the last two weeks, I've spoken with Congressman Brian Higgins and Congressman Chris Jacobs. And of course, they give two different answers on what uh, they expect out of the January 6th com- uh, committee. Uh, but last weekend, We had the Speaker of the House, who put the committee together, uh, not allowing or banning two members that were um, suggested by Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. So we have a committee, and to my understanding, there are only two Republicans on this committee as they go into hearings, correct?
2: That's correct. And to take a step back even further, a few months ago, Congress was discussing – Whether this was going to, instead of being a select committee, which is by design, by nature of what it is, led by Democrats because they lead the House uh, for the next two years. And we were talking about having a truly even 50-50 bipartisan commission that was going to effectively do the same thing that the select committee in in a more partisan way is doing right now. That was a non-starter. The two sides could not get together. They couldn't come to a compromise. And the notion of a commission, bipartisan commission, coming into existence fell apart. So this is why we now have this uh, Democratic-led commission in the first place. And Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats, they hold the cards. So they can constitute this in pretty much whatever way they want to. Democrats and Republicans have done this with other types of select uh, committees of this sort for years and years. This is nothing new in and of itself. What is new is the topic matter and the subject matter. So as a result of that, this is a partisan affair. This absolutely is going to continue to be a partisan affair. And there's not a whole lot that the Republicans can do to block how this committee is set forth and, and the work that they do over what's probably, Joe, going to be months, not weeks.
0: And In its interesting a few months ago, Congressman Jacobs also back on the show, and he said, as you, as you, um, as you probably know, he was one of the few Republicans to vote for the committee uh, because he warned against something like this happening, and we are seeing that. I, I put this now. Maybe this isn't the best um, analogy, uh, but I look at the committee with the two Republicans as if Mitch McConnell put a committee together and had Joe Manchin on it.
2: It, not, not a bad, you know, uh, not, not a bad parallel, uh, not a bad uh, analog, and uh, it, but nevertheless, it's here and it, it's not going anywhere, and it will go forward into an area that could really just uh, have, have, you know, a ton of uh, political landmines, so to speak. Uh, we're getting into some fairly rarefied territory with what this committee might possibly do up to and including uh, subpoenaing other members of Congress. Uh, One thing that the Democrats who are leading this select committee um, are considering doing is calling Republican members who, for example, had conversations with Donald Trump on January 6th to find out what were the natures of those conversations. What did the president say? What did he do or not do? What did he convey? And there are still a lot of – objectively speaking, there are still a lot of questions that are unanswered about what actually happened in the run-up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol, who said what, who directed what, what conversations were had. So expect that, that this is going to be going forward over the next many weeks part of the conversation uh, and and part of the most uh, stark aspects of the conversation that this uh, committee is going to be having.
0: Now, looking at the White House, obviously COVID, uh, something I didn't think was going to uh, rule the week, unfortunately, ruled the week again. And uh, Dave, what are people saying in Washington about, and I don't think this is is an opinion as much, I think this is pretty much a fact, Uh, kind of the mixed messaging coming from the CDC And then the White House, because President Joe Biden, uh, I believe it was Thursday, gave a speech. And in that speech, he said, you know, look at the vaccines, look at what they're doing. And on the other hand, you hear the CDC kind of be more vague about it, which, in my opinion, I thought would be, you know, opposite. But what is the feeling uh, around the White House with all this talk of vaccine mandates, potentially another mask mandate? Yesterday, the president said, in all probability, we're looking at more restrictions. What's the general feeling uh, about what the next move of the White House is going to be?
2: Oh, yeah, it's uh, tons of confusion. I mean, (laughs) there there is uh, no unanimity on what we should do and how we should do it and how fast we should do it. As I mentioned before, much of this is in the hands of states or in the hands of municipalities, even the federal government can make recommendations and suggestions. The federal government can control what it can control, which, for example, is what the federal workforce can do. If you work for the federal government, yes, you are going to have to follow federal rules as to getting a vaccination or be subject to a testing regime uh, not too different from the NFL, uh, which leads to another issue, which is what private businesses are, are going to be doing. And effectively, when it comes to whether your employment is okay or not, you're going to have to follow the rules of your company, ostensibly as a private company. Uh, what Walmart is doing is different from what Target is doing, and on and on and on. So you may go to one grocery store and when it just comes to buying your loaf of bread and your produce for the week uh, you may have a mask mandate or go to a different jurisdiction and, and have uh something that that is not quite that uh in in you might be checked out by somebody who has to be vaccinated in order to keep their job and go to another store, and that's not the case there. So the federal government, you, you think that, hey, they can just wave their magic wand, that they are monolithic, and the pronouncements that they're making. That's just not the case, and it's never really been the case for, for COVID. Uh, that That is – Uh, You know, both a uh, a strength and a weakness of our form of government. Uh, And as a result, uh, if you're expecting that Joe Biden can just snap his fingers and say this is the way everyone in all 50 states is doing it, you're going to be disappointed or you're going to be happy that that is is not the case either. Uh, It is very, very, very locally and state based as to how many of these decisions are going to go forward.
0: Dave, a question I feel like I'm asking you every time you're on now, um, because it seems every Sunday there's a story about money raised an event. Is Donald Trump running for president again? (laughs) I
2: I think I think there's a, a strong likelihood that Donald Trump could run for president in 2024. He wants to run for president. He is making all the moves to try to run for president again in 2024 now. There are a whole lot of things that, of course, can happen between now and uh, 2023 when ostensibly he would announce that he is running for president if he chooses to do so. One thing concretely that I can tell you is that Donald Trump has two political committees that he created uh, in the aftermath of him losing the presidency in 2020. These two political committees have been raising insane amounts of money. Donald Trump is sitting on. Right around about $100 million, Joe, of money that he's raised in the past many months since he lost the White House from people who support him, people from people who want him to run for president. Now, this is not money that's going for his 2024 presidential effort per se, but in essence, it's fueling a campaign in waiting, fueling Donald Trump's political operation, allowing him to zip around the country and conduct rallies and otherwise Run for president without actually formally running for president. So expect much more of that. And even though he hasn't been spending that money on uh, other Republicans uh, by and large, this is money that he has that uh, he can use for really just about any political purpose, including we saw from uh, the most recent records uh, when I was looking at them last night uh, that he's spending some of that money on. From properties that he owns, which is something that he did as uh, president as well. So the the rules are fairly light and laissez-faire when it comes to how he can spend this money. But he's definitely doing a great job raising it.
0: From you know Republicans you talk to in Washington D.C., is he losing any kind of support? Because I look at Iran DeSantis in Florida, you know, who's currently holding a position of power, who is very uh, popular with Republicans. I look at him as, uh, as the kind of guy that would run in 2024. Are you hearing any of that with Republicans in Washington?
2: Definitely. And, they, you know, you're hearing it from uh, from all corners Is uh, to, all right, if not Donald Trump, then then who's it going to be? Ron DeSantis, he would put absolutely at the top of that list as governor of Florida. He, he in a way, is kind of positioning himself as Donald Trump 2.0 with Donald Trump for One reason or another decides not to run for president in 2024. But you can put Nikki Haley on that list. Uh, You can put uh, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem on that list. Uh, Tim Scott from South Dakota, from uh, South Carolina, the senator uh, down there, uh, among probably about 10, 12 other Republicans who conceivably would be there waiting to run for president in a Republican primary if it truly is a open primary that doesn't have Donald Trump running. If Donald Trump decides to run, it's very, very unlikely that uh, most of them or any of them would get in, save for a, a never-Trump-type Republican who would, would run as a counterpoint to Donald Trump and, and probably lose in grand fashion. That, that's where that stands right now. But yes, the 2024 presidential jockeying, it has already begun. It's been, it began months ago, Joe, and it's only going to get Hotter as we go forward, particularly as the midterm elections heat up and you've got some of uh, these Republicans who are running for office, like a Tim Scott and like a Ron DeSantis uh, in 2022, which in a way is is sort of a uh, kind of a, a proxy vote for their presidential ambitions, at least to some level.
0: And Dave, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you this question because I know your knowledge of this state, your hometown Buffalo, your hometown Buffalo Bills, and your knowledge of how politics work. There is a huge story in the Buffalo News this morning about the Pagoulas wanting a fully publicly funded stadium and asking for mm, around $1.3 billion. Uh, Dave Leventhal, how do you see that uh, working out?
2: I mean, my my initial thought is good luck. That, that's just not going to happen. But this is how these things go. There are there are negotiations. You have an opening offer, and 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 you probably have 10, 20 different uh, offer points between that and the ultimate deal. We've known for years that uh, Rich Stadium slash Ralph Wilson Stadium slash New Era Field slash High Park is is going to eventually not be the home of the Buffalo Bills. Okay, we we all know that was going in that direction since 2014, when the Pagulas bought the Buffalo Bills and beat, of course, Donald Trump and Bon Jovi in order to get the team. Uh, So what happens next uh, is going to absolutely be subject to significant negotiations, absolutely lobbying, public pressure, conversations both privately and publicly. Much of this is been behind the scenes, but the notion of it being a purely publicly funded uh, stadium seems highly unlikely, especially at that price tag, when there are so many other competing uh, public priorities going on. Now, that being said, it could it, could this be a 50-50 deal, a 70-30 deal? Absolutely. If you look all across the country at stadium deals that have been struck, many are public-private partnerships of some sort or another. Some have been completely privately funded. Others have been publicly funded. Uh, There's lots and lots of of different, uh, uh, you know, facsimiles or or analogies that we could point to. And the the Buffalo Bills stadium deal, uh, as it gets struck, and I expect most of us hope that it will be struck, uh, is something that is really just going to be subject to those negotiations that will be different from anything else that, that we can point to around the country.
0: Yes, we could. Dave, if I wasn't up against a break, we could break down the disaster that Marlins Park was uh, for Miami.
2: Oh, yeah. And there's some good deals. And there have been some really, really bad deals, too. So, yeah, if, if you're if you're looking for some weekend reading, study up on that issue. <laughs> it, it gets pretty it's pretty bloody pretty quickly.
0: Dave, it's always great catching up with you. We'll talk to you this week.
2: Thanks, Joe. I appreciate
0: it. That is Washington Bureau Chief Dave Leventhal from Business Insider. When we come back, we're talking with State Senator Rob Ort about, yes, COVID in New York State and also the rising violence we see throughout the state. It's not just a Buffalo. It's not just a Western New York issue. It is a New York State issue, and we are talking about that next on WBEN.